It's like my past is encapsulated by this house. It's incredibly therapeutic. You just go back into the space where you're young and everybody's there and it's full of things that you now realize shaped your values, your vision. I wouldn't be the person that I am without these spaces, the place and the things that surrounded me. Hello and welcome to another episode of Homing In. My name's Matt Gibbard and I'm co-founder of The Modern House and Inigo. As always, we'll be exploring the meaning of home in someone's life and why it's such an important foundation stone for them. Today, I'm doing that with the brilliant Frances Morris. Frances is a hugely influential figure in the art world. She joined the Tate as a curator way back in 1987. And fast forward to 2016, she was appointed as the first ever female director of Tate Modern. She's well known for championing the work of female artists in particular. And she also pioneered the idea of arranging artworks thematically rather than chronologically. We recorded this interview in her office inside the bowels of Tate Modern, And it just been announced that she's stepping down from her role. So she was certainly in very reflective mood. It's the first time I've met Frances, but I really felt like I got to know her. She was very happy to show her vulnerability and speak very personally. She's thought a huge amount about the importance of home in her life, to be honest, to the extent that she even knows where her spirit might find its home when she dies. Incredibly powerful and insightful stuff. This is one of my favourite ever podcasts, uh, and it's certainly a conversation I will always remember. Thank you so much for listening. It means a great deal, and I really hope you enjoy it. Very good to meet you. We always start at the beginnings. So you grew up in Greenwich, is that right? That's right, yeah. So tell us about that. I was born in Greenwich. Okay. And so I was born in the house that I've chosen to talk about. Beautiful house, Georgian house, built in 1791, overlooking Greenwich Park, with the National Maritime Museum at one end of the street and Maysville Station on the other. And it was a sort of gateway, in a way, to my life. I was born there, and I kind of think it's the home I will die in. Oh, wow. Because it's where I, it's my go-to place at night. And I meet my sister and my father there. It's, it's like my past is encapsulated by this house. It's the sort of the memory palace. Do you mean literally, i.e. you still go there physically, or do you mean you go there in your no, dreams, I, as it when, were? My sister, who died about 18 months ago... One of the ways she managed being very sick was to, every night when she went to sleep, she would imagine herself back home in Greenwich. And I'd go and see her and we'd talk about it. And in the process of talking about the building, lots of memories were kind of, um, you know, came out of that, of literally sort of walking through it and do you remember? And it's, it's it's incredibly therapeutic. You just go back into the space where you're young and everybody's there and it's full of... Things that you now realise shaped your values, your vision. I wouldn't be the person that I am without these spaces, the place and the things that surrounded me. Wow, I love that. So can you expand on that? As you walk through your family home from your childhood, what is it that you see and what do you think of? It was a very beautiful house. It was tall, it was austere, it was flat-fronted. It had lots of small rooms rather than big spaces. But it was a house that was they, my parents bought in the late 50s. I was born in 59. My father was an architect, my mother was an artist, and it was the house of their dreams. But it was a house that was a complete wreck. It had, been, had an outside toilet, no, you know, no functioning bathrooms, had been a series of bedsits. The, the garden was just like, you know, like no-go area. 
and they put all their love and passion into it. My father was a great maker. He loved working with wood. So he did a lot of work in the house. And he was absolutely a modernist. He'd come from a relatively kind of modest background, but in his 20s he went to architectural school and fell in love with modern art and modern design. So it was, for its era, incredibly modern. We had a bar top and high stools, and the floors were cork tiles, and they lusted after design objects. We had a beautiful brawn record player, Eames chairs. I mean, they weren't affluent, but these the, the small bits of design mattered to them. They saved up their, you know, their hard-earned cash and bought Lucy Ree and Hans Koper from Heels, would you believe it, oh, wow. um, in the day when you could. So, And they also were absolute adored junk shops. So they had this weird mix of really stylistic modern pieces and then kind of Victoriana. We had a copper kettle in this very modern kitchen. My parents were sociable. It was an amazing moment in Greenwich. It was sort of influx of... I suppose, sort of like slightly um, bohemian young couples who probably aspired really to live in Hampstead, but they couldn't <laughs> afford it. So yeah. Greenwich became the sort of hot cultural centre. Lots of families, lots of mates, a very sociable time. And I grew up in this very joyous family environment. That sounds amazing. I have to say it sounds quite similar to my own upbringing. My father was an architect. I also grew up in a Georgian house in what at the time was a slightly fringe area, so we were in Highbury. Very similar. Very yep. similar in a way. And so I, I absolutely identify with what you're saying. I dream quite a lot about my fa- family home. Do you? Yes, I mean, that's what I mean. I go to bed thinking about it. I walk but through do you, the rooms. Do you, but while you're asleep, do you? That's what I mean yeah. when I say that I will die there because I yeah. often wake up and I've been there and my people are alive in that environment who are, are no longer there. Yeah, and um, I find that very encouraging. I mean, comforting in a way because it it, it creates this connection that you don't have in your waking life. Mm. But for me, it was it was not just the house which was beautiful, but it was the place overlooking Greenwich Park, which was our go-to, it was our playground. Mm. But also the National Maritime Museum, which was just a wonderfully dusty reliquary of, of, of half boats and ships and models, and it was a kind of playground for when it was when it was wet. And to get the Maritime Museum you had to cross the Meridian Line. Right. And it was sort of mind-blowing that, you know, you were going from the Eastern Hemisphere to the Western Hemisphere in your street. And I'd never, ever kind of got my head around that. But I always, you know, I'm now in, in, in terms of what I've been involved with at Tate, always very conscious about the crossing borders is really important and that borders are kind of... You know, constructions that don't really matter. You know, mm. culture is transnational. Mm. Borders between nations really don't count very much for, for artists, for example. Mm. And I always felt that as a child, what is this border? Mm. It's invisible. It's so important in the world, geopolitically or whatever, and yet it means nothing. And I suppose the other thing about Greenwich was that it you know, lived in this very modern house. I'm incredibly modern. I remember um, just a couple of months ago, I met Bernadine Evaristo at a dinner and we'd sort of completely forgotten that we knew each other as kids because we both attended the Greenwich Young People's Theatre. And she reminded me that she'd visited my home. I have no memory, but she said she'd visited my home. And of course, she came from a very working-class background in Woolwich. And she said she was captivated by the double sink we had in our kitchen. <laughs> you know, these yeah. are so totally routine now. Yeah. But we did have a double sink, and it had a sort of spray thing. Yeah. And she reminded me that everywhere we had William Morris wallpaper. Oh, did you? But what I loved about that memory was that the the coexistence of those very modern things in a Georgian house has also, I think, made me very comfortable with the idea that, that styles are transhistorical, that, uh, that mm. culture is transhistorical, that things from the present speak very powerfully 
to things from the past. And so mm. when I say it sort of gave me a grounding that was important, I think it was those two things really. Mm. That sort of um, openness to different influences coming together. Mm-hmm. So your father was an architect. What about your mum then? My mother was art school trained. In fact, my parents met at Bournemouth School of Art. And like many women of her generation, they got married incredibly early in their, in their early 20s. And my mum went on to have three children in quick succession. So when I was born, she wasn't working. But after my sister was born, she tra- retrained as a teacher and she taught art. And I remember as a teenager, just occasionally getting to the bus stop, waiting for the 177 and thinking, I cannot do this, and going home. No mobile phones in those days, letting myself in. Once or twice, half an hour later, the door would open by my mother. We'd both be playing truant. I think she just got to the stage <laughs> that she didn't want to be a teacher any longer. So she went back to college and she did printmaking. We got a massive etching press, which went into the basement, and my mother became a printmaker. She had been a painter, and she, with a group of local friends, set up the Greenwich Printmakers in Greenwich Market in an old shop, which I think is still thriving today. So she then became a kind of professional artist. As I'm listening to you, there are so many parallels in my life. It's quite it's interesting, it's isn't it? It's actually yeah. really quite amazing. Well, we are a type. Yeah, is, is, is it that? My father was an architect. My mother was uh, trained in textiles and was a teacher. Mm. The way you describe your house is pretty much exactly how I would describe my own. And I suppose... Yeah, what what is that? Is it's a it's a sort of sensibility of sorts, isn't it? I'm, I'm just trying to. Sort well, of put I, my I think it's it's. Um, I think about Bachelard and writing about space. Yeah. And I think they people who are very visually sensitive and literate and they care about it have a particular. The home is very important to them. It's where they express their inner purpose and their passions. And so my home was full of objects that my parents really cared about, some of which were for them valuable and they you know invested them but lots of things that they just loved mm. I mean my mother loved madly bones and so we spent summer holidays in Ireland and you know she spent most of the summer picking up whale vertebrae <laughs> uh, and cow skulls so yeah she loved junk and I think that very much imprinted itself on all of us children and all of us uh, went on to in different ways recreate that kind of environment in our own homes yeah it's interesting so tell me about school did you get on well at school or did you dislike it what, what was it like well I think I was my brother and my sister were very charismatic outgoing and obviously talented and I think I was a sort of slightly the middle child so I was very late to read I am dyslexic but it was you know, long before it was diagnosed so although I kind of had a modestly happy time at school I actually was kept back a year at primary school Mm. which was incredibly upsetting and damaging as all my generation went on to secondary school there I was in this little primary school but I loved art that was my thing and I kind of uh, escaped into art I loved art and I loved music and I did a lot of singing when you say you loved art, what what age are we talking here that you discovered it as a... I think I discovered it um, as my thing in my second secondary school. Okay. And I was passionate about art and I was going to go to art school. I think my parents just like assumed that that's what you did. They weren't really interested in us doing anything else. But I was heading for graphic design. And at the same time, I was starting to get interested in history of art. And I kept thinking, hmm, Cezanne? graphic design it didn't quite match my aspirations yeah. or whatever so probably in my late you know 16 17 I began to think okay don't go to art school don't become a designer of you know 
Smarties packaging or whatever. <laughs> and no, I remember I taught, I did, I met a graphic designer who that's what the project they were working on, and I just thought I don't want to do this. So I decided that I would probably do history and maybe art history at that time and go to university. That's what and I then studied. I got rather fired up. Yeah. <laughs> history and art history. We have paralyzed. I'm a bit older than you, I think. You are, yeah. <laughs> but I'm interested actually because I'm, I'm, I'm not dyslexic and I'm interested that you are my very best friend growing up to me next door Jed was, is, is heavily dyslexic mm. I said to him actually recently I'd love to see the world through his eyes because I think it's a very different viewpoint how would yep. you summarize that well uh, that's interesting I think I have compensated for dyslexia now so sufficiently not to be aware that I see the world differently except that I am very visual but then I'm an art historian and a curator so I would be wouldn't I but I do think visually mm. I mean, one of the things that I've done at Tate is do these conversations between artists, you know, in our displays and whatever. And I find putting disparate things together visually a very, very powerful way of connecting with the world. I don't know whether that's got something to do with, but often my go-to is not to read a book, it's to look at pictures. Yeah. Was there a time when you were growing up when you came across a particular artwork that you can think that you had a kind of emotional response to? Because I find art a very emotional thing <laughs> as I'm sure you do which is why you do what you do but is there anything that you can remember because we were very close lived close to the National Maritime Museum and in those days you could be a really small child in a museum on your own so maybe five or six you know I would I would be in there and of course there's that extraordinarily famous painting of the death of Nelson kiss me hardy I think is the caption anyway so I that became very early on a painting that I would visit if I was feeling sad. Mm. It's a little bit like putting on a piece of music when you feel... And I, music did the same thing, that it helps you draw out an emotion. And I, that was, for me, a very early association with art. So you've obviously got a very, very strong connection to South East London. Yeah. And you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> We're in your office at Tate Modern, yeah. you know. It, yeah. It's... Um, Maybe people don't know this, but explain what this area here around Tate Modern and around Bankside was like... Uh, you know, when you were younger. Do you know, uh, as a child, I never came to yeah. Bankside. I mean, Greenwich was not brilliantly connected to central London. So I kind of knew a bit about London Bridge and Southwark. So I always felt an affection for this area. But of course, when I first visited this building, which must have been in about 1996, 90, um, maybe a little bit earlier, coming on site to see the building that we were going to turn into the Tate Gallery of Modern Art as it was then called, it actually felt quite frightening. Did it? The riverfront was scary. Um, this was a derelict building. It had been derelict since the 80s when it was decommissioned. It was full of rats. There were, I mean, it was rats and hypodermic syringes that you would find along the front. Um, some council housing, and then lots and lots of really dingy offices when Tate Modern opened, it had a immediate, instant impact on the air in terms of regeneration. Definitely. Yeah, it's unrecognisable, isn't it, now? I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, even the fish and chip shop's gone. Mm. Yeah, some downsides, of course. Yeah.
A very quick interlude, if you'll allow me. For first-time listeners to this show, I just wanted to provide a quick bit of context on it. I'm co-founder of a company called The Modern House, which we founded back in 2005, and then another called Inigo, which is a couple of years old. And they are both a pair of design-led estate agencies. So rather than being constrained by geography or location, like most estate agencies are, our filter instead is design quality. So the hope is that you can go to our websites and at any one time, if you're looking for for a home to buy or you just want some interiors inspiration you can find absolutely the very best homes on the market at any one time this podcast is something we put together because we really fundamentally believe that our homes are completely integral to who we are and aside from family and friends probably the most important thing that we have it comes from a heartfelt place Um, we do it because we enjoy it and we love it and we get to meet all sorts of extraordinary and insightful people thank you so much and back to the podcast Okay, let's move on to the present day. The home you wanted to talk about is actually a boat called Tim, <laughs> which is a very good name for a boat. I always like very human names of loads of pets and boats. I, 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 it's the only boat I know that's not called She. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about Tim. Tim is a folk boat. Uh, folk boats were designed, they're Nordic, Swedish design. I think the first probably dates from around the early 1940s. This was built in 1962, and it was a boat that my father bought in his 80s. Oh, wow. As the last boat he took on as a kind of project to do up and sail in. Boats were, were always in my father's life, always in my life. And he gave it to me six or seven years before he died, at a moment in time when he was too old, really, to get out and use it. And I had a couple of years when I was able to sail it with him and get to know it. But since then, it's been my sort of um, place of retreat, occasional retreat, from a very intense and very busy and very stressful life. Because it's a little bit like a whale, and being inside it is like being in the belly of a whale. Mm. There's beautiful wooden ribs, and the whole boat is wood construction. It's oak and mahogany Mm. and some teak. I think somebody once described it as sort of the boat equivalent of uh, the Volkswagen Beetle. You know, it's a, a small, perfectly formed, designed classic, and it's utterly functional it's the it's probably the smallest yacht you could possibly envisage it's about almost eight meters long one mast two sails and where's it kept i keep it on a mooring off mersey island which is a island off essex where's my mother lives you can see the boat from her bedroom i have a little boat called tiny tim (laughs) to get out to big tim and we sail it around the kind of estuaries of the rivers Colne, Crouch and Blackwater so muddy flat but but wilderness and the wilderness compared to the urban cosmopolitan busyness of London for me is incredibly important Mm. and I love the sea the mountains the deserts and the sea is the easiest and quickest way to get that fix from London Mm. very good oysters there aren't they marvellous oysters my favourite mooring for Tim is a little creek called Pie Fleet, which is off the mouth of the River Colne. And you can go up this little estuary, and because Tim is a small boat, you can go further than any other boat can get. You can drop an anchor, but you can row to the Colchester Oyster Shed, and there you can buy a box of oysters and sit on Tim and have your oysters. So nice. Yeah. And do you ever sleep on the boat? Yes, it's a tiny little cabin, Mm. and it, it has two small bunks. It has a bucket and chuck it loo. As they say, 
and it has a little spirit stove and an oil lamp. Three or four times a year, Martin and I, my husband and I, take Tim off on a little journey to Pyrefleet or maybe Brightling Sea, and we'll stay a night or two and feel in a completely different zone. If Tim were a bigger boat and you could sail him anywhere in the world that you wanted to, where would you take him? Well, you know, I'm not a very good sailor, so I am still in the process of learning the ropes on Tim with a super incompetent but loving husband. <laughs> but I have this ambition, which I will share with you, that when I have more time in my life, I'm going to sail it around England and probably clockwise. What a lovely idea. But I have my middle son is a professional sailor. And oh, wow. I may bribe him to come with me on the longer road. Oh, I would, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, amazing. I'd love to ask you about your home home. My current home. Your current home. You're obviously extremely busy, so do you actually spend much time at home? Oh, well, COVID brought me home. It was the one good upside of COVID mm. that I was able to spend extended periods of time at home. I've got very involved and passionate about climate emergency and doing something about it. So my long-haul travelling has really cut back, which is mm. in some ways a great loss because I love that travelling around the world. But it's also, it has brought me home in another way mm. that I'm you know, really enjoying spending time at home and I have finally set up a home office for myself which is just a completely white cube of a room with a grey floor god it's so like a gallery but I have one (laughs) drawing by Louise Bourgeois that she gave me in 2007 on the wall and piles of books I haven't had shelves built or anything and it is just the most perfect space and I'm getting back to my roots of thinking and writing in that space which is is fantastic actually I've got to ask you about art within the home, of course, I have. I mean, you mentioned Martin, your husband, who has had a very esteemed career in the art world as well. How do you guys decide what you're going to live with out of interest? Well, we've been together for a long time. We met in our teens, I think, just about. And so we have largely compatible tastes. And many of the works of art we have we've acquired together or we've been given and we wrestle a little bit about where they're going to go martin has an office at the court so he has a number of things there that i quite like to have at home <laughs> they will come back home in due course they so yeah. yeah the only i suppose the only point of it's not even contention is that my husband's father was a ceramicist a potter mm. and uh, we have inherited large amounts of his absolutely beautiful pottery so that has come to dominate our house in a way that perhaps i'd like to rebalance but okay <laughs> And can I ask you about picture hanging as well? Because, you know, I suppose the placement of an artwork, particularly in a a very intimate space like a home, it seems to me is pretty important. What would be your advice? How would you go about hanging something in a space? I would suggest you hang only a quarter of what you want to hang. Right. Why is Um, that? Because I think works need space around them. I know people do often opt for a sort of salon hang in their homes Mm. where you have a sort of cacophony of disparate images uh, all over the wall. I think that sometimes looks decorative, but isn't great if you really want to look at the work of art. I think eyeline is really important. Mm. So my husband, he's rather tall and I'm rather short, so we find somewhere in the middle, but... (laughs) Halfway up, yeah. That's an interesting point, that, isn't it, though? I, I always think that people have a tendency to hang things perhaps too high because yep. I think when you're actually you're sat down in a space, you want to be able to relate to the artwork. And also, I think you have to somehow anchor it in the room a little bit. It's difficult to establish rules here, but I do think eye line is good. And mm. you're right, if it's a very sit-down room, mm. then thinking about that angle is important too. I cannot go into anybody's house without rearranging their objects straightening their (laughs) pictures possibly wiping the surface Um, you know it's just so part of my DNA to do that it is (laughs) 
I really like that. That's great. What do you do when you get into a hotel room? Do you ever stay in a hotel room? Do you, are you the person that I re- rearranges keep it? I my eyes closed most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> Would you have any advice for someone who, who doesn't know a huge amount about art but wants to maybe buy a few things for their, for their flat or their house? I would say don't. Would you? Well, I would, I would start with objects. Yeah, I would start, and I don't think they have to be even expensive objects. Your basics, the things you eat from, yeah. the, the, the cup you hold, the bowl you handle, the pan you fry from, the knives and forks, the, the tablecloth if you want a tablecloth, and then I would think about your chairs and tables, and I would do all of that before I think about anything on the walls at all. And before I think about what I put on the wall, I think about the colour of the wall. Always pairing back to what is essential. Why would you take that approach? I mean, I agree with you, but what, how would you put your finger Because I think it? you build up from basics. Yeah. You know, it's like if you're building a building, designing a building, start with the structure, not the detail. And you may find you can hold back on detail. Yeah. And not have any detail. You know, I spend most of my time at home trying to get rid of things, not trying to accumulate them. Yeah, that's really good advice. I want to just ask you briefly about your, your work here at the tape. You are the first female director. You've obviously had some pretty groundbreaking exhibitions here by female artists as well. And I read that your favourite quote is an Eva Hess quote, which is, excellence has no sex. Is that right? <laughs> I think I said it's such a good quote. I think I might re- rewrite that excellence is female. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> at the moment it is at Tate Modern. Yeah. And that's been exhilarating, I have to say. So tell me about that. Why is this subject so important to you? Well, I suppose on a personal basis, I think as a child and growing up, I always felt... There was a boys' club. My brother belonged to it. My father belonged to it. I lived in a very gendered patriarchal society and was acutely aware of extraordinary female talent, both unrecognised and under-recognised. So it was always important to me. The first, Some of the first artists that I really got to know were female artists who used their work in their way to express that. Through my career at Tate, I had the power to do something about it. Mm. And then it was so easy. You what? know, it, it wasn't difficult to say we need to up the quota. Mm. I couldn't believe it was that easy that once you're a director you could say right we're going 50-50 and you know there were a few people I remember some are saying you mean we're not going to open with a room of Cytromboli and I said no we're not going to. (laughs) You know I hope when I move on that that is held in you know in mind because you have to work very hard to do it always because we still live in a very gendered world and the marketplace for art is massively male still and not just the marketplace but the profile it was amazing going to Venice this summer to the Biennial, which was a wonderful exhibition full of huge numbers of great female artists who've been under-recognised. And yet the big shows in Venice, with the commanding shows, were by living male artists. And we just have to keep going. What was the first show here when it opened? The first show was the Louise Bourgeois Commission in the Turbine Hall and that was incredibly important Mm. and something that I felt was very powerfully symbolic because she was a great female artist Mm. who had been discovered only in her 70s. She was almost as old as the 20th century and her work was so contemporary. Mm. So she was like the youngest of old artists and the oldest of young artists and to put her in the Turbine Hall was a very, very for me, a very powerful symbol of what we were about. We were about turning, you know, disrupting the conventional narrative. Mm. We deliberately adopted a non-chronological approach because it gave us a freedom to insert artists who are difficult to accommodate in a male canon. You know, the the, the male art history 
written around the work of men, by default excludes practices that, in relation to that history, are marginal. Yeah, I so, thought about that. That's very so interesting. Still, the challenge is how do you how do you find a structure in order to accommodate artist practices who fall outside the conventional? Just to expand on that, because people might not realise, but at the time it was incredibly radical, wasn't it, to organise a permanent collection thematically or however you wanted rather than doing it chronologically yes it was completely um it was absolutely destroyed by the press yeah both the popular press and the academic press and amazingly we we stuck by it mm. what do they think of it now i mean i think it still has its critics but it also demonstrably is able to tell a different kind of story Mm. and a story that needs to be told and other museums are trying to tell and many of them are adopting similar or if not identical strategies. I'm going to give a shout out now to Hannah, Hannah Phillips who's sitting with us who does so much good work behind the scenes on this podcast and I'm going to give her a bit of a moment because Hannah did her university dissertation on the turbine hall and it's a very important space for her i would love to ask her to ask you a question let's turn the, let's turn the microphone over to you Hannah. oh i'm so thrilled that you did your thesis on the turbine hall uh it's my favorite art space in the world because it's my earliest my earliest art memory was visiting the rachel white reed in the turbine hall and i remember running around it as a kid and i just have always found it a really calming space and very um kind of ignites my imagination in a way because I remember being a child there and it changes so much depending on the artist who's in it. For my dissertation I compared Tanya Bruguera's piece with Doris Salcedo's because they kind of explored similar themes of migration and um, borders in different ways and they were both from Latin American countries and had their own context that they brought to the pieces. What I found interesting about those two installations was that the execution was completely different. Obviously Doris Salcedo's was this huge intervention that was really exciting and didn't really need much explanation behind it in order to be engaging. Whereas Tanya Bruguera's you really had to engage with, you really had to know the context for it to have meaning. I was wondering what to you has been one of the most successful or exciting installations in the Turbine Hall personally maybe well first of all i you know what you said about the turbine horse so chimes with my own feelings for it and attachments to it and i love the idea that there are people out there like you who have that experience and that maybe they you know i know people take their first steps then i just think that's wonderful but in relation to your question i don't have a favorite but i do think that each one has been very different and each one has had a different kind of legacy and maybe i can say something about the two that you did your thesis about because they both in different ways have a permanent legacy. Doris Alcedo's crack, this fissure, a little bit like the Meridian Line, is still there. We filled it in but every morning when I walk through the gallery I can walk along that crack so it's forever there, it's forever a rupture in the building and once you realise that then you can find other memories of other projects so I can go and stand on the footprint of the Louise Bourgeois Towers because you can see the screw holes and so the whole floor is a kind of palimpsest of all the projects but as you say Tanya's was complex but it was almost the most profound and transformative because what 
Tanya did is she made us think about the institution in a different way. And she did that because she worked with this group of neighbours, volunteers from around and about Bankside, which included social workers, activists. There were one or two really tough nuts from Liberate Tate. And part of the project was for them to be able to ask questions of us at Tate and help challenge ourselves. And so as director, I had the privilege of being interrogated by the neighbours on several occasions. And they wanted, for example, to become part of... They wanted one of them to be a trustee and they wanted to be on an ethics group. And there were all sorts of things that I had to say no to. One meeting, they asked whether we would take the name of Blavatnik off the Blavatnik building because they wanted to challenge the association of the museum with wealth. And, of course, we couldn't do that. You know, Len Blavatnik and the foundation have been hugely supportive of the building, um, the biggest single donor, and that's what donors accept. But I kind of had a light bulb moment, and I said, well, we can't do that, but we could name another part of the building. And out of that conversation, I think we agreed in principle that subject to the agreements of my senior colleagues we would ask them to name Tate Modern, the, the, the original building, put a name on it. Amazingly, everybody agreed that we could do it for a year. They did a local vote, and Natalie Bell, who's a really wonderful, extraordinary local uh, second-generation immigrant and works with young people who have experiences of immigration, and she was voted as the person we should name the building after. So now we have the Natalie Bell building, which I think speaks of a, a set of values which is incredibly important to us. And we have the Blacknick building, which speaks of another set of values which is incredibly important to us. And after the year, the name stayed on. So for me, I have to say that Tanya, who's an artist I have huge admiration for, I think she's extraordinary. I just think that it was such an intelligent, powerful, place-changing gesture. Fab. Francis, let's move on to the future. <laughs> Although we're not really going to the future, which, but it, interestingly, you've thought about your sort of dream space and you've chosen Georgia O'Keeffe's house in the village of Abiquiu in New Mexico. Now, I've got to tell you, I've got a kind of bucket list of places that I want to visit in my life, a bit like you and your sailing around the country. And um, carbon emissions aside, this is at the very top of the list and it kind of always has been. So I'm very pleased that you've chosen it. But um, have you been there? Yes, I have been there. I visited in, well, at least 10 years ago, always wanted to see it. I always wanted to go to New Mexico and I really want to go back. And most, it's the most extraordinary part of the world, utterly inspiring. But this building in particular, um, it felt utterly familiar and yet utterly radical for me. And I would love to, yeah, I would love to live in a space like that. What felt familiar about it? Weirdly, it's like a sort of um, New Mexican kettle's yard. It's, yeah, a, right. it's a beautifully built and designed environment. You can feel the hand of a, an artist in its construction. It's a building that, like Kettle's Yard, is full of objects that speak of an extraordinary design sense, but speak of history and speak of the way that art integrates with the rest of the world. So it's full of pebbles, for example. It's full of um, found objects, and yet it's also full of modern works of art and, and you know, chairs by Charles Eames and Batoya, and then George O'Keeffe's own painting. So it has this beautiful uh, kind of ecology to the design mm. in this stunning space. It's an adobe building, which is adobe being the local traditional way of building with sand-fired bricks covered in clay. It's a low-rise, single-floor complex of 
cubes built around inner courtyards with the emphasis on apertures so doors and windows are very important to it and light filling these courtyards and it's yeah it's a little bit like walking through a sculpture yeah because it was built in 1735 originally but then well i think when she when she took it over which was in uh, just before the second world war it was a ruin yeah but it does date back to the 18th century in part yeah, yeah. and then i mean she took that original sensibility and, the, and the, as you say the thick kind of adobe walls and then she punctured them with these big openings so it's that's that combination isn't it does it feel very connected to the landscape the house itself is almost enclosed in itself and inward looking into these courtyards but then she built or had built a small building on the side which is studio plus bedroom from those spaces you get these incredible views of the river valley and the black mountain behind it and when you think about uh, O'Keeffe's paintings there's a very distinctive mountain that appears and a lot of them it has a flat top and that's the view from that studio so that that view is just sort of transcendental but the rest of the house feels beautifully cool and enclosed mm. and some of her late paintings which are ones I really really love are almost abstract dark squares or slightly sort of um, rectangular shapes and those shapes come from looking at and painting the internal doors and windows from the courtyards into the building for example the sort of the famous paintings are the, the ones of her patio door yeah that's right just so, a blank it's door like, in that it's long, like found long abstraction yeah you know Malevich's black square he found yeah George O'Keeffe's rectangle she found and I love that idea What's, that what, why do you think she was so drawn to it because she said she bought the house because of purely because of that door she used yeah. it to climb yeah, over the walls yeah. to look at it well, it's just okay it's got perfect dimensions why else would you not love a door hmm and I think people who are very visually attuned, it's the golden section, there are proportions that speak to people in a very powerful way. Who knows where that actual shape came from for her, but it is, when you visit, a kind of very satisfyingly human scale. But there must also be something more sort of emotional and psychological about it. I mean, it, does it signify something for you, that door? I think all doors do. I mean, they're sort of, you know, transitional spaces, aren't they? And corridors are liminal zones, and there's a possibility you're, you're, you're transitioning from one space to another, and it's a moment of transformation. Mm. And I think that uh, people who are very attuned and sensitive to architectural spaces do feel that mm. it seems to me the kitchen's quite ahead of its time in a way she had a sofa in there where you could sort of socialize while you cooked kind of thing well the, the kitchen is fantastic mm. and, and also the for its time it must have been absolutely the best cooker and the most advanced mm. fridge and then, then there's a larder to die for I and mean, she did have a cook mm. so it may have she may be privileging her cook but it <laughs> i think you know eating and socializing was at the center mm. of the home which of course is a wonderful aspect of that home it's a real home you feel the sense that there are people visiting and and staying and enjoying being there do you like that hot desert climate would that appeal to you or could you see out your days in that kind of heat i, I don't think i could see out my days but i do find that kind of dry heat mm. and the flatness of the mesa and the extraordinary skies that come as a result of it, uh, weather conditions there incredibly compelling. And one of my great ambitions, of course, I can never live in Georgia O'Keeffe's Abiquiu, is to have a residency at the uh, Wurlitzer Foundation outside Taos. And I would like to write my book in one of those adobe residency spaces. Well, speaking of that, it's been announced that you're stepping down from your position at Tate Modern. And as we said earlier, you've been here very many years. So talk me through that that decision. Well, uh, 
There's a, there's a great painting in Tate's collection by a German artist called Oskar Kokoschka. I think he painted it in 72. And I remember walking around uh, Tate Gallery, now Tate Britain, in the 90s and doing a light little bit of a adding up how many women were on display and there were three. And I came into this room and there's a painting by Oskar Kokoschka and the title was Time, Gentlemen, Please. And of course it was referring to ringing the bell in a London pub. But it just feels like time. I've been here for a huge amount of time. And the things that I sort of set out to do, the things that as I grew into the role wanted to do, I mean, they'll never be finished, but I think I feel comfortable with the point at which I've taken the place. When I took on the role of director of Tate Modern, somebody asked me in an interview, I think it was Charlotte Higgins in The Guardian, how would I describe my vision for Tate Modern? And I rather naively, or not naively, but just like off the top of my head said, a university with a playground attached. And when I think about the bigger picture of Tate Modern, beyond the great shows that we make, the two things that I think I feel really excited about since I've been director are, one, embedding really extraordinary research with the support of Hyundai in everything we do. So deep research that has public outcomes. Mm. That's the university bit. But then equally and parallel to that, over the last couple of years, building this program in the Turbine Hall, which is for very young kids and families, which has had such an extraordinary impact on the profile of our visitors. Because for the first time, it feels like we are attracting an audience of people who live locally, who would not otherwise come to the museum. And so them and their, their children in particular are getting an experience of the museum and of culture such as I got in the Maritime Museum all those years ago where I felt completely natural to be part of this, this place. And therefore, the fact that those two things are, are, are just really thriving at the moment feels leave the rest to another generation. Yeah, I think you said that um, you love the idea that Tate is the biggest, most visited museum in the world, but also a local museum as well. Yeah. So that sounds like what you want your yeah, legacy to be. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? Well, I'm obviously going to sail Tim around England, but I hope to write a book. I'd love to get back into doing some radio. I love the radio as a medium. I want to curate exhibitions. I want to do some long, slow travel maybe long journeys by sea or road or rail. I want to get back in contact with the rest of the world, but do it in a, in a climate-friendly way. Mm-hmm. doesn't sound like you have any plans to retire. Listen, I'm walking from one space through a corridor to another space, mm. and but shifting the function that I am the same person. Mm. Yeah, I will not retire mm. yet. When you look back over your life, what is it that will give you the most satisfaction, would you say? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I have almost no nostalgia. Apart from visiting my home, that's an exercise. I don't look back and think, feel proud, or I don't find those sort of achievement things terribly important. I love places and experiences. What can I say? I don't know. I just... You can say what you like. No, but I think you're being modest. I think, you know, which is understandable because you're... No, it's true. It, It is funny. I live very much from day to day. So everything that I've achieved is an achievement of the moment and then disappears into the past. Mm. I think it would be great to find a moment where I sat back and thought, wow, how amazing, but I wonder when that will happen. I suspect that will never come, that moment, Mm. don't you think? I think it won't happen. I I just think if you're someone that looks forwards, it's it's, it's quite difficult to stop and look back. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm actually very futures-orientated. You know, when I said... um, 
what I want to do. I really, really want to find a way of being more involved in the climate thing. There will be a way that I can contribute. Mm. Yeah. Francis, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, I did too. Thank Good. you. And thank you, Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you so much for listening, as always. We've recorded loads of new episodes with all sorts of amazing guests. So do me a favour and press the follow button and you'll be alerted as soon as a new one comes out. It's also worth heading over to the Modern House website to see photographs of some of the things we've talked about and you'll find a link there in the show notes. Homing In is produced by The Modern House and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. The music is by Father. A huge thank you, as always, to our brilliant team at The Modern House for all of their work behind the scenes in getting this thing produced. Take care and see you all next time.